At the southeast corner of New York's Great Central Park, on what is officially known as Grand Army Plaza, stands a dramatic 15-foot-tall gilded bronze statue of Civil War Union General William Tecumseh Sherman. Perched high on a pedestal of Stony Creek granite, the statue, sculpted by famed Gilded Age artist Augustus St. Gaudens, portrays the general seated triumphantly on his horse, being led resolutely to victory. The allegorical symbol of victory is part of the statue grouping as well. Striding proudly forward with her gown and eagle's wings flowing behind her is the heroic figure of a woman. Her right arm is raised and outstretched, and in her left she carries a palm frond, a traditional symbol of victory. Tourists mill about around the pedestal looking up as well as a few distracted New Yorkers who rush by, but what captures their gaze more often than not seems to be that figure of victory. St. Gaudens' model for the figure of victory on the statue was Hetty Anderson, a young woman originally from South Carolina who had come to New York in the 1890s and began to work as an artist model for St. Gaudens and a number of famous artists of the time. The plaque at Grand Army Plaza, as well as on a reduced-sized copy of the sculpture at the Metropolitan Museum of Art, notes that she was black. Over 200 miles away, up in Boston, tourists, art lovers, and Bostonians can't help but looking up at the stunningly painted ceiling of the rotunda of the Museum of Fine Arts. High above visitors' heads in that lofty dome are murals of gods and goddesses telling the tales of mythology painted by the great portrait painter John Singer Sargent. When our gaze stops on the figures of Atlas or Apollo, there's just something arresting about how they're portrayed— a kind of power, a majesty, an enduring strength. Despite Sargent's depiction of the ivory-skinned, blonde-haired gods, his inspiration was a 26-year-old black man from North Carolina who had landed in Boston and became Sargent's principal model for the Museum of Fine Arts project, modeling for both male and female deities. His name was Thomas McKellar. And a very recent discovery of material hidden away in museum files allowed his story and that of his own artistry to now finally be told. This show attempts to contribute to the effort of bringing both Hetty Anderson's and Thomas McKellar's stories to wider audiences. They, in a different way from the painters and sculptors who portrayed their likenesses, were professional and dedicated artists as well, and their stories must be told. I'm Carl Raymond, the host of the Gilded Gentleman History Podcast. Every two weeks, I'll take you beneath the glitter and the gold in America's Gilded Age, France's Belle Epoque, and England's late Victorian and Edwardian eras. Several years ago, I was working as a tour ambassador on the 100th floor observatory of One World Trade Center in Lower Manhattan. The job required me often to get to work early in the morning to get ready for the groups of tourists arriving the moment the observatory opened its doors. Seeing New York City from over 1,200 feet above the ground as the early morning light is beginning to cover the city, and particularly on a clear and cloudless day, well, it's just really an unforgettable sight. The view extends far into the distance, and you can see bits of Connecticut and Pennsylvania on particularly clear days. 
The sun shimmers over the harbor, leading out to the sea, watched over by, of course, the world-famous Statue of Lady Liberty. One of my favorite landmarks, one that I often pause to look at as it caught the rays of the early morning sun, was the David Dinkins Municipal Building next to City Hall and by the entrance of the Brooklyn Bridge. This glorious McKim Mead and White building, constructed between 1909 and 1914, was part of the City Beautiful movement inspired by the Chicago World's Columbian Exposition in 1893. The stunning construction, with its light granite facade, is home to many of the city's offices and includes dramatic bas-reliefs over the entrances representing New York's history and the consolidation of the five boroughs of New York City in 1898 to create the metropolis that we know today. But what always caught my eye on those early mornings high above the city was the 20-foot-tall statue of a woman in gilded copper rising nearly 600 feet above the ground. She's elegant, classically dressed, clearly a goddess, and holds a crown aloft as well as leaves and a shield. She was sculpted by Adolf Weinmann, an assistant and student of the great Gilded Age sculptor Augustus St. Gaudens and Daniel Chester French. She gleams with pride and strength in the early morning light, and she is Hetty Anderson. For years, guides and historians have attributed the role of the model for Weinman's sculpture to the far more famous and sensationalized Gilded Age model, Audrey Munson. Some recent scholarly opinion challenges that assumption and firmly holds that the heroic figure is based on, as St. Gaudens himself called her, the goddess-like Miss Anderson. Hetty Anderson's story, including her life in New York after escaping the brutality of a Jim Crow ravaged South, came to light beginning in the 1980s with research by members of her surviving family and further independent scholarship beginning in 2020. There is still much of her life that remains unknown. A few letters exist, along with other documents that help place Hetty at certain places at certain times and in certain studios of significant artists. What emerges from what is known is the story of a woman who worked as an artist model during New York's Gilded Age, for indeed some of the Gilded Age's most important and famous artists, and their work, inspired by her form and bearing, represents some of the most important public work from that period. Unlike her most famous colleagues in the modeling profession, Audrey Munson and the scandal-tinged Evelyn Nesbitt, Hetty Anderson, from what is known, remained very much in control of her choices, her work, her income, and of how she was portrayed. This is the story of a woman who radiated power not only in the figures that she inspired, but in her own life as well. She was a goddess, she was an angel, she personified liberty and victory, and she was a mixed-race woman from the South, making her way in New York City in the late Gilded Age. Hetty Anderson was born Harriet Eugenia Dickerson in 1873 in Columbia, South Carolina. Little is known of her early life. Her mother worked as a seamstress, and articles note that other extended family members were engaged in professional trades as pharmacists, educators, physicians, and members of the clergy. Recent scholarship notes that the letters in her hand that exist demonstrate that she was educated, but it is not known where and when. Likely to escape the discrimination and lack of solid working opportunities, Hetty and her mother left South Carolina and made their way to New York City, surfacing in the mid-1890s, when Hetty would have been just about 20 years old. By the time she relocated to New York, Hetty had taken the name of Anderson. 
At this point, records and documents do not explain the reason why she changed her name. Census records note that Hetty and her mother took up residence at 698 Amsterdam Avenue, a large apartment building on Manhattan's Upper West Side, not far from Central Park. The building stands today much as Hetty would have known it, with, of course, the exception of the deli on the ground floor and the modern apartment buildings surrounding it. Census records further categorize her as white, but although light-skinned, there is no information on how Hetty described or presented herself. Throughout her years living with her mother in New York, it is known that she welcomed family members visiting from elsewhere. Hetty took up work as a seamstress along with her mother in addition to work as a store clerk. At one point, she likely began to work as a model at the Art Students League on 57th Street and also likely began taking some classes. The Art Students League had been founded in 1875 as an alternative to the National Academy of Design, New York's most well-known art school of the period. The Art Students League offered a wider variety of classes and more opportunities for women to study and develop as artists. Board members included artists Thomas Eakins and Augustus St. Gaudens. New York, and indeed America in general by the end of the 19th century, was deeply influenced by the neoclassical style in its taste for architecture. Grand civic buildings were being built in most major cities, and the Beaux-Arts style, which incorporated neoclassical elements, blended with elements of the Renaissance and the Baroque, and that informed the style of libraries, municipal buildings, custom houses, courthouses, and even some private homes. To be able to radiate the stature and heroism and strength of the mythological and allegorical figures often portrayed in neoclassical style was a sought-after talent, and one Hetty Anderson naturally projected. How and when she began her work with the circle of top artists and sculptors of the time is not known. In the mid-1890s, the great Gilded Age painter John Lafarge used her as a model for an Athenian deity in a mural he had been commissioned to paint for the Art Museum at New England's prestigious Bowdoin College in Maine. She posed as well for Daniel Chester French for several of his works, including The Spirit of Life, a memorial for wealthy Gilded Age financier Spencer Trask, which can still be found today in Saratoga Springs, New York. French's work interprets Hetty as a Greek goddess, in this case, the goddess of health, winged with winds sweeping back her gown and her hands held aloft, and in one, bearing a small bowl of nourishment, and in the other, a pine branch. Perhaps Hetty's most significant artistic collaboration was with sculptor Augustus St. Gaudens. St. Gaudens was working at the top of his form when, in the early 1890s, he was commissioned to create the Sherman statue for New York's Grand Army Plaza with the prominent figure of victory leading the general and his horse into battle. Augustus St. Gaudens has been called the American Michelangelo. He was born in 1848 in Dublin, Ireland, and soon fled with his parents to America to escape the devastation of the Irish potato famine. Landing in Boston, but then leading the family's way to New York, St. Gaudens' father set up shop as a shoemaker, in fact making shoes that adorned the feet of many of the Gilded Age's most famous names, including some of the Astors. Augustus did not follow his father into the shoe business. However, he became apprenticed to a cameo cutter as a teenager. The delicate fine work appealed to him, and he spent hours laboriously carving the minute details to bring these tiny sculptures on pins to life. 
St. Gaudens soon set off for Europe, and he began to apprentice in Paris while taking further classes in art, finally moving on to Rome, and began to experiment with larger full-size sculptures. He returned to New York for good in 1875 and began work on his first major commission, a statue for Madison Square Park, by now the most fashionable district in the city. Augustus St. Gaudens became a major client of Hetty's, and other artists tried to coordinate their work with his as demand for her modeling grew. Modeling rarely paid a great deal of money, but it could be a regular and consistent form of work. And for a model, as in demand as Hetty became, she could make her own decisions about for whom and for what she chose to model. Work as a model was not glamorous. It required often extremely long hours adjusting one's body into numerous poses as the artist considered various effects, and then, of course, holding a desired pose for extended periods of time. It is known that Hetty traveled outside of New York to model for certain projects, including one trip to Stockbridge, Massachusetts, to work with Daniel Chester French in his studio at Chester Wood. Little is known of the modeling sessions between St. Gaudens and Hetty. However, an extraordinary sketch exists done by chance by St. Gaudens' friend, the Swedish portrait painter Anders Zorn, which portrays an exhausted St. Gaudens with an image of Hetty as herself resting from a modeling session in the background. St. Gaudens was dedicated to Hetty as his model for the representation of victory. He worked on the sculpture throughout the 1890s and wrote to various family members, including his brother, son, and even niece, indicating how proud he was of not only the Sherman statue, but of his creation of victory. In fact, noting in one letter, it's the grandest victory ever made. Articles on Hetty's life note that in St. Gaudens' unpublished writings, he describes her as the handsomest model he had ever seen of either sex. The Sherman statue was completed and unveiled on Memorial Day 1903 in front of an excited crowd of New Yorkers and special dignitaries, including Sherman's grandson, the sculptor St. Gaudens, and his wife. In 1906, President Teddy Roosevelt sought to have American coinage redesigned as it had been described to rival that of ancient Greece, and St. Gaudens was engaged in the project. Taking inspiration from Hetty's work modeling for victory, St. Gaudens used Hetty for the strong figure of liberty striding forward, rays of sun radiating behind her, torch raised on what was once called the most majestic coin ever to bear a national imprint. The image in shining gold is not unlike the image of civic fame when caught by the morning sun. Shortly before his death in 1907, St. Gaudens presented Hetty with a bust he had created as an early draft for the head of victory. The bust, it could be said, clearly portrayed Hetty's image, and in fact, in 1908, Hetty, with astute business acumen and forethought, had the bust copyrighted herself. St. Gaudens' son asked Hetty to have the bust returned so copies could be made. Augustus St. Gaudens, when giving the sculpture to Hetty, knew well of its future value, and it seems so did she. Anderson flatly refused to relinquish the piece and kept it intact as the one-of-a-kind artifact that it is. As he prepared his father's autobiographical writings for publication following his death, St. Gaudens' son Homer scrubbed the material of any references to Hetty, 
perhaps in a kind of retaliation for her refusal to release the bust to him. Hetty continued her work modeling for artists that included the Connecticut-born sculptor Bella Pratt, another student of St. Gaudens, and Evelyn Beatrice Longman, a sculptor known for her allegorical work. The body of work that was inspired by her form and power now included Daniel Chester French's Bronze Doors of the Boston Public Library, portraying her as Truth, a sculpture of a seated female sculptor adorning the steps of the St. Louis Public Library and several cemetery memorials. After the early years of the 1900s, modeling opportunities waned and her great client Augusta St. Gaudens had died. Through the help of Daniel Chester French and Evelyn Longman, she took a job as a classroom assistant at the Metropolitan Museum of Art, organizing classrooms and taking care of the lantern slides. These were images of artworks on glass plates. They were slid in front of an early projector, and these glass plates were used to illustrate works of art to students in class. And likely several of those plates that she regularly cleaned as part of her job held images of her. Her mother, Caroline, with whom she had lived since they'd arrived in New York, died in 1928, and Hetty continued to live at 698 Amsterdam Avenue on the corner of 94th Street. Hetty continued her life in New York, living in relative obscurity. The press had barely covered her throughout her active career, and her reputation remained as a focused, dedicated professional woman, far from the sensationalized fame of others whose circles came close to hers. Hetty Anderson died on January 10, 1938. Her estate included a significant amount of money, diamond jewelry, and a grand piano. Hetty's body was sent back to Columbia, South Carolina, and buried alongside her mother in a family plot, although her grave was and remains unmarked. And now we're going to take a brief break, and when I'm back, we'll travel to Boston in the years following the Gilded Age to take a look at the life of Thomas McKellar. But we will return to Hetty Anderson and see how these two artists' models, who likely never met and worked nearly 10 years apart, will forever be linked by the art they inspired. And we're back. I'm Carl Raymond, and today we're taking a look at two extraordinary artist models, both with black heritage, both of whom worked for major late 19th century and early 20th century artists, and both, without some recent scholarship and discovery, could likely have remained unknown. Isabella Stewart Gardner was one of the Gilded Age's most notable, and you could say eccentric, at least by Bostonian standards, characters of the art world at the beginning of the 1900s. Born into the wealthy old New York Knickerbocker world, she was educated in Europe and married into the equally wealthy Gardner family of Boston. Her husband, John Lowell Gardner, was most often called Jack, which led to her famous nickname, Mrs. Jack. Substantial money and a profound cultural curiosity allowed both Isabella and her husband to travel extensively and begin to collect fine artworks from their travels. Their collection soon included exceptional work by Botticelli, Titian, Rembrandt, Vermeer, and Velasquez, among many others. Jack Gardner's unexpected death led Isabella to realize a dream that they had once shared, and that was to create a unique space, a new museum to showcase her own unique taste and the works that they had collected. 
Copying the style from the Venetian Renaissance Palazzi, a new palace in the form of a very personal museum rose above Boston's Fenway and opened to the public in 1903. Isabella Stewart Gardner was painted several times by the great portrait artists of the time, including Anders Zorn, whom, as you will recall, had sketched Hetty Anderson, and Isabella's good friend, the great portraitist John Singer Sargent. In 1924, not long before her death, and his was to follow the next year, Sargent gave Gardner a portfolio of ten drawings and sketches. For a number of years, Sargent had been shifting his work from the private portraiture to much larger, grander paintings and murals for public buildings, including his earlier commission for the Boston Public Library. His most recent project had been to paint a series of allegorical murals of mythological figures for the Great Dome of the newly built Boston Museum of Fine Arts. The sketches, each one signed to indicate that it was Sargent's own work, were of the principal model that he had used, a young black male model named Thomas McKellar. While Thomas McKellar's and John Singer Sargent's story begins nearly 100 years before, it was one day in 2017 when a curator of the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum discovered the original portfolio of drawings forgotten in a museum storage cabinet. The drawings were extraordinary. The model's vibrance clearly came through. Sargent had been exceptionally detailed and rendered McKellar in a series of sensual, dramatic poses that were indeed translated to the actual murals he produced for the Museum of Fine Arts. But the sketches captured the personality and face of Thomas McKellar himself. The discovery of the drawings led to the extraordinary exhibition mounted in 2020 by the gardener, Boston's Apollo, Thomas McKellar, and John Singer Sargent. At last, McKellar's story and the story of this connection could now be told. But the figures that Sargent painted for the museum were typical portrayals of Greek gods and goddesses, white skin and blonde hair. These sketches were different. Here, McKellar was much more clearly portrayed as who he actually was. Great care and interest is evident on the part of Sargent. The eye follows the musculature. You turn your head to follow the figures on paper. The figures almost seem to move. On some of the pages are images of the faces of classical Greek gods with more traditional faces and expressions, but it is the images that are of McKellar that draw one's eye. Thomas McKellar was born in Wilmington, North Carolina in 1890. Like Hetty Anderson, there is mystery in his early life, but he, like her, clearly escaped the prejudice in the South and came North for a new identity and a new life. In a short film made to celebrate the opening of Boston's Apollo, McKellar's great-niece comments that there was a question of McKellar's sexuality and that he was likely gay. At the time, even among close family and community, that could be a subject of shame and prejudice and may have contributed to his relocation North. In his trips to Boston, John Singer Sargent enjoyed the accommodation at several of Boston's elegant hotels, including the Hotel Vendôme, a French-inspired grand hotel built in 1871 in Boston's fashionable Back Bay neighborhood. McKellar worked as a bellhop and an elevator operator at the Vendôme, and it is here in 1916 that the two likely met. 
Art historians have commented that Sargent was captivated by the models that he found particularly beautiful, and the drawings he did of McKellar clearly demonstrate that fascination. Sargent worked on his commission at the Museum of Fine Arts for nearly 10 years, and McKellar continued to model for him throughout that time. Like Hetty Anderson, McKellar would have been required to remain often in difficult-to-hold poses for lengthy periods of time, and the pay was minimal. Yet, it could be steady and helped McKellar to pay for food, clothing, and accommodation, along with his job at the Vendôme. Along with the museum commission, Sargent used McKellar for murals at Harvard, those found at the Widener Library, and also as the body model in a portrait for one of Harvard's presidents. In addition, McKellar modeled for at least one other contemporary artist of Sargent's. McKellar's muscular body is represented in the statue of the Native American Massasoit, completed in 1921 by the sculptor Cyrus Edwin Dallin, and which stands today in the center of Plymouth, Massachusetts. Visitors today at Boston's Museum of Fine Arts are struck, as I was recently, as I stood in the rotunda beneath the Sargent murals. McKellar appears as Apollo holding a lyre and singing. He appears as Atlas balancing the world on his shoulders. And he suddenly appears in other figures all around us. Once we have seen the drawings that Sargent so carefully left in Gardner's care, we know we are seeing him. Perhaps the most exceptional part of the story lies in a dramatic painting that John Singer Sargent did of Thomas McKellar in 1917 and continued to work on for several years. This portrait measures roughly 50 inches by 33 inches, and it's the only male nude that Sargent ever painted, and it was a work commissioned by no one. It was a work that Sargent painted for himself. Yet the work remained open and visible, hung in his studio for years. In this painting, we see Thomas McKellar as he was and as Sargent saw him. It is a nude, a slightly erotic pose. McKellar's head is thrown back and turned to the side, his eyes looking up. If you look closely, you see a pair of wings flowing from McKellar's sides. It almost looks as if they weren't intentional, but they are there. McKellar as an angel. John Singer Sargent died in 1925, not long after painting McKellar for the last time, and after giving his sketches to Isabella Stewart Gardner for safekeeping. Thomas McKellar continued to live in Boston, buying a home in the Roxbury neighborhood, marrying at age 44, and finding work as a laborer, a clerk, again as an elevator operator, and lastly as a postal worker. He died on July 15, 1962. Descendants of those who knew him, including one who had met him, remembered him with a great smile and a warm and open personality. The point of this episode is to pay tribute to two beautiful artist models through whose inspiration and presence, art historians have suggested, allowed their artistic interpreters to create some of their finest works of art. The partnership between a model and an artist is indeed a collaboration. One is not complete without the other. It's a public, yet very intimate relationship. What I find profound in the stories of Hetty Anderson and Thomas McKellar is that without them, we would likely never have had the chance to glimpse the divine. And we nearly lost the chance to discover who they were in the guise of their real selves at all. The statue for which Hetty posed and the murals for which Thomas modeled show them to a point. 
but that's only part of them. What is most important is where we can see them for who they were. There is one intact photograph of Hetty in a private family collection, and there are the gardener drawings and the portrait sergeant did of the real Thomas. But there is no known photograph of him. But even though they are hidden in far grander works of art, if we look, now that we know, they are absolutely there. As an interpreter and storyteller of history, I always feel that to see as clearly as possible someone from the past, you have to walk where they walked and see things, or whatever is left of things, as perhaps they did. I've stood on the sidewalk in front of the Vendôme in Boston, now a luxury residence. I've also stood in front of the building which was once Sargent's studio and to which McKellar so often came. And just this week, I made the walk to Hetty's old apartment building not very far from my own and imagined her walking exhausted along the avenue after a day of modeling on her way home. But there is a part of them, at least we can see, in the art they inspired. And so I love the idea of a young black man escaping prejudice, looking down at us from the dome of Boston's Museum of Fine Arts, or singing to us as Apollo. And I deeply love the image of Hetty Anderson in the guise of civic fame on the top of New York's municipal building, high above the metropolis of Gotham. I love the image of a mixed race young woman from the South who in her work portrayed liberty and victory, gazing out each day over a city that represents diversity, resilience, inclusion, and strength. Thank you for joining me today for another episode of The Gilded Gentleman. The Gilded Gentleman is produced by Bowery Boys Media. And I invite you to join The Gilded Gentleman as a patron of the show on patreon.com slash thegildedgentleman. Your support really helps me continue to be able to produce the show. As a patron, you'll have access to patron-only and special preview material and advance notice of Gilded Gentleman live and virtual events. I'll see you soon. And after all, what's life without a little glint of gold? <laughs>